Chapter Twenty Seven of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven: Measuring Sacrifices. Following Mrs. Spafford around during the days when these business changes were taking place was an undertone of doubt and anxiety about mission effort in general and her own share in it in particular. Her old friend's keen, stinging sentences had remained to burn. Was it child's play? Did the Lord look with sarcasm on it all and laugh at their pitiful little mimicries of sacrifice? I will laugh them to scorn were the Bible words which seemed also to start up and haunt her. She did not look them up and follow out the connection and thus comfort herself. She had little time for actual study for a few days, so she simply went about her many duties with puzzled face and troubled heart. When, during intervals of care, she dipped into the Bible for a few minutes, she found herself following out the commission, Go, preach, teach all nations. Be diligent in season and out of season. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Earnest words, intense words, fully as keen and piercing as any the returned missionary had uttered. She grew to feeling that she had not even been half in earnest. When it really came to the question of sacrifice, how had she shown any personal knowledge of it? As the weeks and months went by, the perplexities of the subject did not lessen. She found herself buying sparingly, perhaps she might almost have said grudgingly, whatever could not be classed among necessities. The pretty carpet, which she had thought of with pleasure when she was mentally adorning Mr. John's room, cost her actual size. What was the use of carpets anyway? Boys and girls in Africa, China, and India perishing, and she buying carpets. And when one morning Mr. Johns asked and obtained permission to bring his nephews out to spend the evening with him, as she made preparations to have a dainty or two added to the evening meal, she felt perplexed over the additional expense. Even the very lumps of coal which she threw on to the grate in the bright parlor cost her a twinge, and she said to herself for the hundredth time, What is right and where does wrong commence? We might sit in the dining room. They called it dining room winter and summer by courtesy, but you will remember that, in winters at least, it was also a kitchen. I like to have those young men come up to tea, and I like to make the table inviting, and this room is as pretty as a picture in which to receive them. But I could sacrifice all these likes if I am called upon to do so. Only it would be sacrificing other people's likes also. Am I called upon to make other people's sacrifices for them? And if not, how am I ever to separate myself from other people? Meantime, her spiritual life was not without its bright hours. She had grown deeply, in fact almost painfully interested in Mr. John's, a middle-aged man who had buried the wife of his youth and had since been homeless. Perplexed though she was with what appeared to be conflicting duties, she was not sufficiently confused to give over the most thoughtful care and kindness toward this homeless man, and certainly he seemed to appreciate it. He grew daily more interested in matters which were evidently of absorbing interest to Mr. and Mrs. Spafford. He was beginning to be almost as regular at church as they themselves, 
and for a few weeks past he had joined them at the front door, or at the little gate, or perhaps at the corner, and gone with them to prayer meeting. He always came downstairs for evening worship, and he always lingered for morning prayer. Surely these were cheering signs. Mr. Johns was not a heathen, it is true, in the common acceptation of that word, but Mrs. Spafford's morbid state did not reach to the height of ignoring the individual value of his soul in the sight of God. That it was a morbid state, at least in part, she became almost convinced as time passed. Still, there was enough truth in her difficulty to make her unable to get away from it. The bright-eyed, plain-spoken missionary, who had so confused her sense of the fitness of things, had long since gone on her way, sought after by missionary societies in all directions, to tell to their eager ears the story of her own life, which certainly was full enough of sacrifice, though this she apparently did not realize. But the effect of her intense words, spoken in haste, remained. It was finally to Mrs. Temple that she told the whole story one bright winter day, when she and young Warren went to spend a few hours with that lady. The fact is, all the perplexity came to her with tenfold force, surrounded as she was on every hand by evidences of wealth and expensive tastes. The very carriage, with its luxurious cushions and handsome horses, which had been sent to wait upon her and baby, had given her a questioning twinge. Thinking it all over, she presently turned the conversation in that direction, and found herself telling over to Mrs. Temple her missionary friend's excited words. There were tears in the elder lady's eyes as she listened, but there were smiles on her face. "'I've been over the same ground,' she declared, to Mrs. Spafford's immense relief. "'I know just how it must seem to you, just how the words and thoughts which they suggested have stayed with and tormented you. Never mind, dear, don't grudge the unrest they have caused you. They will bear fruit. Meantime, there are two sides, even to your earnest friend's words. She, from her standpoint, sees plainly one side, but not the other. I think she feels and talks very much as the Lord Jesus Christ would have done, had he turned away in despair and disgust from those poor fishermen who thought they were leaving all to follow him. What did they leave, after all? What sacrifices did they make? Yet they thought they were making great ones. And in what infinite patience he bore with them, and led them along step by step, until the time came when they counted not their lives dear." I don't think they would have been ready for martyrdom that first day when he called them from their nets. Poor human sight would have felt utterly discouraged with them many a time between that day and the one in which they went up to him through fire and blood. So the church is growing. Some of our dear Christian ladies have but just heard a faint echo of his call, Go ye into all the world, though it has been sounding for centuries. There are many of them standing now on the threshold, dazed with the echo, scarcely knowing if it can possibly mean them, and seeing sacrifice and burden where one day they will count it all joy. And only he can seem to bear patiently with childish footsteps, and wait for growth and strength. Besides, dear Mrs. Spafford, there are two sides even to their dresses and bonnets sometimes. 
I happen to know the private history of one of that very group of bonnets which your friend saw and deplored. It was bought at an uptown store, where a pretty young girl is just struggling up into position, trying amid great competition to establish herself. To secure Mrs. Jason Ward's custom, to make her a bonnet of such material and in such a fashion that others of Mrs. Ward's set would look and admire and follow example, was an advertisement for the struggling young woman which she will not soon forget. Indeed, I sometimes think that that very bonnet is going to bring that pretty new milliner into the kingdom. Then beside her sat Mrs. McChesney in an elegant new black silk. She read a report that day, you will remember. When she referred to sacrifices, I could barely hide a smile at the smallness of my own thoughts. I was wondering whether she had really felt it a little sacrifice to have that dress made by Mrs. Dormer, a widow who is a neat and skillful sewer, and is trying hard to secure work such as will enable her to keep her children together and educate them. She made this dress, did it well, is capable of doing well, and yet I know that Mrs. McChesney likes to go to Lawrence and Newcomb's old established house. They have always done her work, and suit her exactly without any trouble. Still, she didn't go there. And what is the result? Why, ladies of her acquaintance said to one another, Did you know that Mrs. McChesney's new black silk was made by Mrs. Dormer? She must have a very high opinion of her work if she gives her such an elegant silk as that. And forthwith custom pours in upon Mrs. Dormer. It is as good as a hundred-dollar advertisement to her. And I will tell you in confidence that Mrs. Dormer brought me around a five-dollar bill only last week as a thank-offering to the special fund in our foreign missionary society. I know Mrs. McChesney is more interested in that society than in any other, said poor Mrs. Dormer. She herself had never thought of the heathen twice in her life, but she continued, so I thought I would bring it, for I do feel so thankful to her. She is coming to the next meeting, Mrs. Dormer is, you understand, and who can tell whereunto this may grow? Now that is a glimpse of the other side. I don't say that it is, or it isn't, the best way to manage these things, but what I do say is that the Lord sees the heart, and little seeds of loving-kindness to one's neighbor— whether he be next door or across the ocean, may be, in many hearts, unknown to us, unknown to those grand missionaries who have gotten above us so far, that they see all the glory of the work and the honor of being allowed to toil, but not so high up that they can see into each human heart, and accept the petty sacrifices, and watch the growing seed, and wait for harvest. Still, said Mrs. Temple, as the talk went on, there is her side too, and we must not forget it. There are thoughtless expenditures among wealthy Christian women. There are hundreds lavished where tens would do. That cannot be denied, and we do well to look thoughtfully and prayerfully at it from this missionary's standpoint, and by realizing what a ridiculous sarcasm our lives present to her, get a glimpse of what motiveless and unconsecrated expenditure must look like to God, who gave himself for souls. That is it, said Mrs. Spafford, setting War down again on the rug, 
and standing before her friend, her face aglow with feeling. Leaving all these people who have plenty of money, and with whose expenditures I have nothing to do, how am I to regulate my own life? I am in great confusion. Then she dropped back into the low easy chair, and, led on by tender questioning, began to tell all about her trivial perplexities, the new carpet, the extra dishes, even the parlor fire, and the nephews. Two sides, dear friend,' said Mrs. Temple, still smiling. "'You will need to learn that by heart. When the disciples were commissioned to preach the gospel to every creature, they were to begin in Jerusalem. Now think a moment. Suppose you, instead of going over on that rainy afternoon two years ago, and helping to reconstruct not only Mrs. Evans's kitchen, but her home, oh yes, I know all about it, Mrs. Evans is also a friend of mine, remember. But suppose instead you had worked a collar for the store, which would bring eventually a dollar into the treasury of the Lord. In actual dollars and cents, how would it have compared? How much in dollars has Mrs. Evans been worth to the mission band, her influence dating from that day? How much may she be worth in the future? What may her husband do? I think he has commenced grandly. Did you know he subscribed ten dollars to the Young Men's Fund for Bibles for Mexico? And you know surely that he believes you and your husband were the means of showing him Christ. Do you believe you could have done it by saving your time and your money for the foreign mission treasury? Then I think the Lord has important work for Mr. Johns to do. And your pretty home, yes, and the pretty parlor, and all the purity and peace of his surroundings, may be the master's cords of influencing, drawing him. As for those two nephews, I don't believe you know that they are in Mr. Temple's Bible class, and that they are evidently giving serious thought to the all-important questions. The older one, Charlie, told my husband about his visit at your home, and about the delightful evening which you gave them, and a hint of some thoughtful, earnest words that you spoke to him under the gaslight. He admitted to Mr. Temple that if he thought he could be such a Christian as you and your husband were, he would like to be one. I tell you, dear, the Lord knows you, knows just what place he has set you in, just how many people you can touch with your influence, and just what he is going to do with them all. And he loves the cause, both at home and abroad, more than you and I can. But what about the sacrifice? said Mrs. Spafford, after a thoughtful pause, during which her face had lighted greatly. I don't quite understand that. Give till you feel it, is the sentence I read the other day, that should be taken as a motto by all the Christian world. I don't know how to do it. As I have been telling you, my actions seem to be so mixed with other people that I cannot separate them. How am I to sacrifice for any cause? Mrs. Temple bent toward the rug and gave herself up apparently to the pleasure of a frolic with war his happy shouts and evident appreciation of the fun drawing his mother's pleased attention. When her gaze was riveted on him, with the mother-love shining fully in her eyes, Mrs. Temple said suddenly, "'What a heavy sacrifice your life has been during the past year for the sake of this one little boy! How many nights have you sat by his crib? How many hours have you walked the floor with him in your arms?' 
how many comforts have you gone without for his sake? In short, how continually you must have felt the weight of self-sacrifice for him. Can you compute it, Mrs. Spafford? A quick telegraphic dispatch from the heart of one woman to the other was the immediate result of this sentence. Then the mother bent and kissed her baby. I do not feel the utmost that I can do for him to be a sacrifice, she said with deep feeling, because I love him so. Do you mean, Mrs. Temple, can I think? Do I think you can so love Christ that whatever sacrifices of personal ease or comfort you may make for his sake will become so much a joy as to cease to be claimed under the head of sacrifice? I, indeed, there is a higher plane than that of sacrifice. There was much more talk, but I cannot give it to you. Its sum is embodied in Mrs. Spafford's words as she wrapped War's cloak around him and tied his gay cap under his chin. Thank you, Mrs. Temple. You do not know what you have done for me this afternoon. I don't know myself yet, but I feel sure that I am a great deal richer than I was when I came. Then immediately, Mrs. Temple, you need not have ordered the carriage for us. We could go home by car. Mrs. Temple laughed pleasantly. Are you afraid, dear, she said, that to luxuriate in a carriage instead of being uncomfortable in a car is not making use of your opportunities for sacrifice? Save your car fare for the mission might box and ride with a clear conscience. John, on his way up for you, dropped Mrs. Perkins, you know. She doesn't get rides often and needs them. John is going to stop for her on his way back and bring her home. So you see, you may safely enjoy the carriage. Mrs. Spafford responded by a happy little laugh. I don't think anything about comfort or sacrifice, she protested. I was just planning to stop on the way and do an errand. Do all the errands you want to. Mrs. Perkins will be in no haste to get home, and John will make love to war with all his heart while you are gone. Notwithstanding her protest, Mrs. Spafford found her heart rejoicing over the fact that she could see work that Christ would own, even connected with that luxurious carriage. Had he not said, unto one of the least of these? Mrs. Perkins ranked among the least as the world looked at it, but she was assuredly one of his own. War was left for a brief minute, cuddled among the cushions, talking to John, while his mother stopped at one of the great stores, summoned the carpet clerk, Mr. Johns, and directed him to bring the nephews home with him to supper. Then she hastened home, set the parlor aglow with beauty with the aid of a large bouquet, brought from Mrs. Temple's greenhouse, then beguiled Phyllis into entertaining war while she made cream muffins for tea. New light had dawned on her pathway, new meaning there was in the verse, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. She saw new ways of doing it. She was gleefully happy over the muffins. End of chapter 27